I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a Scottish comedian, television presenter and writer. While studying law at the University of Glasgow, she spent three months in North Carolina working with criminals on death row. After she graduated, she became a corporate lawyer and soon started performing stand-up in the evenings. After seven years, she left the legal profession behind to become a full-time comic, winning the Best New Scottish Comedian at the Real Radio Variety Awards in 2009. Since then, she has become a fixture on British television and radio, a regular guest on Radio 4 panel shows, the News Quiz, and I'm sorry I haven't a clue. And in 2018, she was honoured by the University of Glasgow for her work in broadcasting, as well as her campaigning on issues related to LGBT rights and mental health. A lot of comics of my generation play games, she once said. To me, it's a bigger issue than gaming. It's the art direction, it's the music, it's the expression. It's more than just some guys in their pants shooting things. Welcome, Susan Cowman. Yes, <laughs> I'd forgotten I said that. It's always a terrifying thing when you speak to someone because you think, my goodness, I forgot to say that. Uh, hello, nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. Were there any errors in that uh, in that introduction? I don't think there were any errors. Oh, that's uh, good. Apart from the fact I've given up 
I haven't done stand-up since 2017. Oh, okay. So right. when I did a television show called Strictly Come Dancing. Yes, I remember. My Wonder Woman will never be forgotten. That was the last time I toured. And after that, I've just done television. And I often, I listen I listen to your episode with, with Dara Green and his stories of still touring made me actually a little bit jealous. Oh, it did. That was hankering slightly after it, yes. Was that just a natural break then? I know, I guess the pandemic might have had a hand in that as well, or was it a conscious decision? Well, the, I think the difference between myself and maybe someone like Dara is um, he was playing venues that were big enough to turn a profit. <laughs> I right. I think in my last year, about 185 shows in lovely little art centres where it was just it was just me. I had no manager, I had no mm. support. It was anywhere that had a train station and a premier in mm. that's been a replay. And it's quite a lonely life mm. if you're touring on your own. And it also takes two years or so out of your life to prepare the tour and everything else. And I started doing presenting on television shows and it was nice because there were other people about and it became less lonely. So I think one day I'll go back to it. But at the stage I was at, whilst I really enjoyed it, to say it was a loss leader would, would not be quite suggesting how bad my finances <laughs> were at that point. So strictly put uh, put change to all of that, I guess. Yes. Um, okay, let's. Uh, could you just tell me sort of when video games first entered your life? Did you play them as a young kid? So there's a there's a a large break in my video gaming excitement. So I'm 48, so a lot of people in my generation will probably understand this. We had an Atari console, which my brother liked. I've got an older brother. Everything in my life really is about the fact I had an older brother. He was mostly in front of the Atari console, and I seem to recall there was an Indiana Jones game that if you got to the final screen and you took a photograph of reaching the final screen uh-huh. and sent it to them, you got a certificate or something. Nice. And I just remember my brother playing it forever and ever, and I didn't really get a shot of it, but I did get a shot of the BBC computer we had. And I remember swapping tapes in the playgrounds in a gross violation of intellectual property <laughs> laws and I went on to become an intellectual property lawyer so I, I now realise how horrific yeah. my crimes Careful what you admit to here How horrific <laughs> my crimes were and on a Sunday morning I would get up and you had to load it and it took ages so you would put it in have breakfast come back and play a game so I played the BBC computer games and then after that there was really nothing at all I went to university and didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have any money, really. Was concentrating largely on, on drinking and discovering myself. Uh-huh. And then in 1997, that's when it started because that's when I bought an N64. Okay. Well, this seems like a good moment to come to the first game on your perfect console. So I'm asking you to pick the five games you would like to immortalise in your own games machine. Do you want to tell us about the first one, which I think is from 1997 and the N64? It's the absolute stone-cold classic GoldenEye.
I didn't have a call. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was going out with um, a girl at the time and I, we went into a shop and decided to buy and it was an N64, I remember it very clearly. And the box had GoldenEye on it. So it was, a, it was specifically a GoldenEye N64. And no idea what I was doing. No idea what was happening. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I'm not the world's best gamer. And I had no problem saying I'm not the world's best gamer. I remember in the first part of GoldenEye, I think it was, I couldn't work out what I was doing. And in those days, if you recall, there was a lovely little booklet. You often got a booklet with a map and instructions and all that stuff. Mm. And they had a helpline number. And I phoned someone and said, I can't get out of this part of GoldenEye. And they said very patiently, you just have to press the button. <laughs> and all the helplines. So I started playing it. And I still think for me, it was one of the most incredible and revelatory experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. It really was. I, I don't play a lot of first-person shooters. The, the way that that game works, the sound design, the missions, the objectives, the playability of it, utterly captured my heart. Could I play enough to get the golden gun? Could I play enough to get the extras? Could all of that, all of that kind of part of it was just utterly thrilling to me and it really was when i fell in love completely with falling into a different world that's what it was to me it was yeah. you could completely escape into a different world goldeneye is also really famous as well as obviously based on the james bond film uh, from that came out a couple of years earlier but um most people played it long term in terms of the the multiplayer didn't they which was you know all everyone pressed together on the couch and playing together was that your experience at university did you have a little group um i until i met my wife didn't know anyone else who who gamed oh okay it was uh, your, your secret it was it was just it brought no one else did it no one else did it i, I did a lot at university and everyone was busy being law students and going to balls or something like that. I was I was quite an alternative student in that I, you know, was gay. I was a bit kind of strange. I'm not saying everyone in the law faculty was like this, but it's quite a traditional place. And so, you know, he didn't go in on a Monday morning and say, did anyone else manage to escort Natalia through the <laughs> office? It was, it was something that you did. For me, I always played it as a, a solo player but what i really love about what happens now and i thinking about these games for this podcast i went down so many beautiful rabbit holes on youtube and i love the fact that goldeneye i watched the documentary on goldeneye and i watched people doing you know <laughs> walkthroughs and just love the fact that that game continues to be in the consciousness and people keep playing it and keep putting videos up about it the tragedy of it was I split up with that girl. Right. And she took the N64. Has she paid for it? No. Ah. But you know what happens. <laughs> so I had such fond memories of this time that later on in, in life, I've got an, I bought an N64 with GoldenEye and I've played it since. Yeah. Because... No matter what else has happened in my life and other consoles that I've played or I've had, there was something about that N sixty four. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it was, mm. and especially Goldeneye that was beautiful. So I, I have one now, 
mm. to replace that one that I I lost. I know there's an argument about the graphics, and I know there's an argument about all of those things, but it's still absolutely brilliant in my view. Yeah, I think the control scheme is a uh, is a little difficult to get used to if you're used to modern control schemes. But there's a bunch of stuff that game did that are still still really pioneering. Particularly, you mentioned earlier the the missions that you have to do and how on higher difficulties it gave you more things that you have to do, which is just, I don't understand why that's not been taken up by other video games. It's such a great design and it should be the standard. Probably spoiled me for other games after that because it was so good. And it also sparked, and this is a very odd thing that I'd never told anyone about. So this is... Exclusive. I mean, it's not going to make the front page of the papers, <laughs> but... There's a part of GoldenEye where you drop through the ceiling into a toilet. Mm, yes, I remember. And it has sparked a lifelong obsession with me about toilets and video games. <laughs> Hold the front page. If I find that I'm delighted and my wife loves them and show, I found a toilet. Like in, do you remember in Duke Nukem? You can flush the toilet in Duke Nukem. <laughs> yes. And I don't know why I find it so charming. But they have toilets in video games. In like 2005, you would have had a blog, a really popular blog of like toilets in video games. Dot blogspot. Probably have a YouTube channel where I repeatedly show yeah. people all the toilets yeah. that I found. Score them. But it was, I think, it, I think it did spoil me because that game was just this bizarrely beautiful moment in time. Um, and having played film franchise games after that, really, none of them have ever come up to what that game did yeah yeah it's definitely the benchmark that's never been improved improved on yeah uh, you, you mentioned that you had a bbc micro in your house when you were a bit smaller i imagine for people who don't come from britain the idea that the national broadcaster would have a have a computer that loads of kids played and and was responsible for building a generation of game developers and game fans is, is a bit strange but it was a really influential machine you had uh, I, I believe quite high achieving parents were they sort of eager for you to get to know to get to you know familiarize yourself with computers i mean i think the would not understand anything that i'm talking about in the slightest i mean it's just not something that technology, I keep trying to teach my mother how to, to listen to a podcast. I keep saying, it's very, it's a, you can do it, it's fine. I think they thought, because my dad was a doctor and saw computerization happening possibly in the hospitals, that they thought that, that this was quite an important thing to have in the house. They were they were never early adopters in the old anything. We rented a television for years. Oh, wow you know, mm. massive thing in the corner of the room. But they did have a Betamax video recorder. I mean, I think sometimes they, they did push the boat out occasionally. I think it's one of those things that if you if you didn't have... So we learned it was DOS. I had a massive book about the size of three bricks, which was a programming book. You could make up your own games and you could play the theme tune to Close Encounters uh -huh. if you programmed uh -huh. it in. And sitting for hours just typing for five seconds of pleasure when you felt like it was like it's the year of the world war games with matthew broderick and where computers were this incredible thing and you did mm. feel like you were suddenly far more intelligent than you actually were and did you uh, you mentioned that you obviously had a had a girlfriend at university and so in that sort of those teen years where you're starting to figure out your identity and all of that did video games 
provide sort of any room f- for exploration for that? Because, uh, uh, you know, I know there are some stories of young people who are exploring their identity for whom taking on assuming different roles in games can be quite helpful in doing that. Did you, was that true for you? For me, um, games have always been an escape. It's not really been about, I've never really, my wife's, my wife's a far more enthusiastic gamer than I am. And she loves making up the characters and she loves all of that kind of stuff. For me, it's just pure escapism that I have a certain amount of control over. That's why I love games. I've got um, control issues. <laughs> and I love the fact that gaming gives me a cinematic escape, but I'm in inside it. And so for me, for me, for being someone who is slightly anxious sometimes and can get quite depressed, it's, it's just an escape. That's what it is for me. I've never, ever wanted to be anyone else. I've always just wanted to be a slightly more cheerful version of myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So coming home, especially 1997, I was training to be a solicitor. So I'd graduated and I was training to be a solicitor. And long hours, terrible pay. I knew from the beginning it wasn't really for me. But I'd done it now, hadn't I? Got a flaring degree in it. I have to do it. And so it was one of those things where you could just escape almost for a whole weekend into another world. Yeah, there's something very reassuring about games in the sense that you're given a set of problems and if you do the things that the game wants you to do, those problems get fixed. Like it's really really, um, just in a way that the world often isn't. Do you know what I mean? And that can be quite comforting, can't it? It's why why I'm equally obsessed with um, the golden age of crime fiction. So Agatha Christie's, there's a set of rules yes. to crime fiction. There's a problem, someone's murdered, someone sorts out, and at the end of it you find out what happens. And I, I love the fact that there is a logic and there is a conclusion to it. And even later on as games have become more complex and more wide-ranging, there is still an end point to it. There are tasks to be completed. And as the world becomes slightly more uh, difficult to comprehend, video games and gaming it's a simple world in a way for me obviously you you do leave the legal profession at some point but there must have been something that drew you to it in the first place do you think it was that sense of um rules that uh uh, was that attraction was it different expectations that took you there luke i'll be really honest yeah at my school if you had any intelligence you did medicine or law i'm rubbish at science so I did law. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And whilst I, I really did enjoy it, the passion that I wanted, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian from as long as I can remember. Oh, you did? All right. But in 1992, I don't even think the Stand Comedy Club, which is the most important club really in Scotland, was even here. And I, I, I hate to say this, there was no internet. I didn't get a mobile phone until 1996. So what do you do at that point? You do the most sensible thing, which is do a proper degree and get a proper job. There's no one in my family who's ever done anything as ridiculous as giving up a well-paid job to become a clown. Okay, let's uh, let's come to your second. We're going to pick that up in a minute, but let's come to your um, your second game on your list. Uh, can you tell us about it? After the N64 went missing, I couldn't afford my flat. And I got a series of uh, undesirable flatmates. One of them was a, and I don't even, I was trying to think, I don't even know how I met him. But you would never do these things these days, but it seemed fine at the time. <laughs> I met a very tall gentleman called Scott. He was six foot two and he was from Oregon, I think. And he moved in. 
And he said, why don't you have a PlayStation? Good question. Right. What's a PlayStation? I said. So we went down to, we went to Blockbuster and we rented <laughs> both the console and the games. And Tomb Raider 2, it was a toss up between Tomb Raider 2 and Resident Evil at this point, mm. because they were the two games we rented. And I remember clearly on a, so we would rent it on a Friday night. I remember on a Wednesday phoning up with my credit cards to Blockbuster saying, can we continue the rental? Which was, I mean, I was spending a fortune rate in these things. So I eventually said, right, we'll buy and we'll buy a PlayStation. Yeah. And Tomb Raider 2 um, was one of the games we had Resident Evil and we had Tomb Raider 2. And there's a level in Tomb Raider 2, which is in Venice. Now, looking at it now, as I did yesterday, it's not great. But at the time, yeah. I was in Venice. And it was that same feeling I got from GoldenEye of, this is absolutely amazing. Yes. The most deeply frustrating game I've ever played. Trying to get Lara to jump in the right direction. You couldn't, because I think my television would have been awful <laughs> at that point. Trying to see some of the rock formations and trying to jump to the correct point and desperately frustrating. Yeah. But at the same time, proper action. And it was just, I thought, brilliant. You know, I don't think necessarily it held up as well as GoldenEye, but we would get a crate of beer and sit and play Tomb Raider for a weekend. Halcyon days. <laughs> Shit, I know. My God, I was unfit because I was smoking at the time as well. I mean, it was the worst, it was the most unfit time of my life. But at the same time, just brilliant. Yeah, I haven't returned to that game since since whenever it came out, 1997 or something. And yeah, I remember Venice as well. It had amazing music, I can remember. And in my head, you're like, you know, zooming around on the on the canals that's probably completely inaccurate it would be almost but you got in a boat you did get in a boat okay that's the correct memory then <laughs> and again i know if younger people are listening thinking well, this is a boat no you don't understand that you could get in a boat and it just seemed like it was like seeing the future yeah it was because it was only three two three years earlier that all games were 2d there just wasn't such a thing as a 3d action game like tomb raider and then suddenly the whole world changes and there'll never be another change like that again, I don't think. So to live through it, you're right, you know, it was, it did feel incredible. It felt like something that would have been impossible just two years earlier. Yeah. And I think having, then having the PlayStation, suddenly a world opens up because in Blockbuster, again, Blockbuster Party, which I remember very fondly, had a whole wall of them to rent. You were their favourite customer. They could see me coming a mile away and you can go down and you could rent games for the weekend, that then opened up an entire world of of renting video games. Um, and I've still got that PlayStation. So I've got all of the consoles I've ever played, including my N64. So I've got that, that PlayStation with all of my little memory cards and slots and everything else like that. Going back and trying to play with those original controllers, gosh, it's 
tough. Everything's smoothed out in our memories, isn't it? And then you actually go back and see the horror of it. (laughs) (laughs) There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah. So you, you graduate and you become, as you say, an IP lawyer for, for seven years. And then I think it's just after you turn 30, is it, that you decide to actually become a, a stand-up comic like you've dreamed of? You know, that takes, I think that takes quite a lot of courage to do something like that. What was it that pushed you over that edge to actually hand in your resignation? And what did they say when you did that? So it's a, it's a decision which everyone who knows me can understand because I am a deeply, deeply... Um, risk-averse human being. I, re- I mean, I really am. But I started doing stand-up. To be a stand-up, you just have to be a stand-up. There's, there's, there's no other way of doing it. You have to go to the Frog and Bucket. You have to go to the Comedy Store. You have to, you know, you have to just travel. And having a, uh, not even a nine-five job made it impossible. I remember the first time I went on stage. I think I was sick. I was so nervous. I was awful, but I loved it. It was, it was everything I hoped it would be. It was. Did you get laughs? Do you remember? Yeah, there were some laughs, but it is a very patient Glasgow crowd. <laughs> like, was responsible. I don't. I don't think became in any way proficient at stand up. So I started in about two thousand and five or six, I think. Uh, two thousand and thirteen, I think, was the show at the Fringe that I did, which I thought actually was quite good. Mm, so six, right. seven years, you know, to find out who I was as a stand up comedian. My lovely wife said to me, "Give it." two years and if you're if it's not working by then you can go back to law so was she supporting you at this time oh yes absolutely she was amazing and i couldn't have done it without her saying just give up your job and try it just do it yeah just do it i started earning money around 11 years later well you not even yeah 11 years it took 11 years to actually earn what i would say is enough to live on yeah uh, it, it was bad but I, I was loving it and the difference between Earning a lot of money doing a job that I didn't really like and earning no money doing a job I'd always dreamed of is that you, you've always dreamed of doing that job. And meeting idols, you know, French and Saunders and Joe Brand and people like that was just incredible. So, I mean, everyone thought I was stupid and everyone thought it would be awful and I would come straight back. I'm sure my boss thought someone's having a bit of a time, aren't they? I think everyone just thought I'd, I'd had some form of breakdown right, yeah. and I'd come back. Um, but then I was suddenly determined to prove everyone wrong. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And, um, you know, at what point did you... So, I mean, it sounds like that first gig you were pretty sort of happy with how it had gone. But did, but 
did you immediately feel like you'd made the right decision or was there any part of you that that doubted what you your choices oh i mean all the all the time so many day so many a horrible day uh, i did a gig in a pub in a year where pint glasses were being thrown at me oh gosh i mean it wasn't really at me it was at someone else but i happened to be in the way because i was there was no stage i was standing on a chair <laughs> one of the first jobs i did in television which i thought because you're naive and you think i got a job on television doing a show and you think well that's it that's me famous that's it brilliant and actually um while the show was very successful they recast it with someone else i'm glad it happened quite early on in my career because i realized that television and comedy and everything else is a fickle industry where a lot of people don't tell the truth that's a tough that's a tough break though isn't it quite early when you're all excited about getting an opportunity like that to have it taken away from you. That must have been devastating. Yes, it just means, though, that I now quite rightly mistrust absolutely everybody I speak to. Right. <laughs> or they say, oh, no, no, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. Until, and I think it's always a really good rule, until something is shown on the television, even, don't trust anyone. Because you can be cut before it gets to the television as well. <laughs> even if right. you film something, until that is on the yeah. television. Until you're eating your takeaway while watching yourself on the screen. <laughs> I learned a lot of lessons. You learn to be very resilient. You learn to understand that it isn't personal when someone says no. It isn't. You're just not necessarily right. And um, it's, a, it's a tough old industry. It really is a tough old industry. But what I've done is I've just forged my own kind of slightly old pan. Yeah, it seems like the way of the world now. Everyone's just forging their own odd paths. There's no... Doesn't seem like there's many sort of traditional routes. De- definitely outside of law, at least. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of um, horrible deaths, why don't we come to your third game, uh, which is from 2001? Can you tell us about this? Of course. Now, after the tragedy of the shared flats with the, the tall American, I met my wife and we moved in together. Now, we met on a blind date and... It was an advert I put in to a magazine because it may surprise you to hear this. I've been single a long time, playing Tomb Raider and drinking beer <laughs> and smoking in my flat. And I love that you took an advert out in a newspaper. With this and Blockbuster, we've got a great period piece here. It wasn't just in any newspaper. I'd like to be clear, I didn't just put an advert <laughs> saying Desperate Lonely We Were Six Company. It was in a personal section oh, okay. of, of a magazine called The List. And I went on a date. Uh, with my now wife and uh, fell in love with her very quickly, moved in very quickly. But when you meet someone like that, it takes you're constantly just checking whether or not you you like each other. It's an odd thing meeting someone like that rather than through friends or you know. And I think it was a few weeks in, she revealed that she loves gaming, and so did I. And one of the first games we played together was Silent Hill Two. So this game holds a great deal of memories for me because it was one of the first games that we played together. Hell of a game to play together first. 
I know, it's so romantic, isn't it? <laughs> I think, again, it was racing, though. <laughs> I seem to have a real problem with buying games. And the reason I loved it was, I, I mean, I think it's an amazing game. I think it's amazing. I think the bowling alley, the flats, the, the, it is, I think it's just beautifully done. Yeah, we should say it's a, it's a ho- horror game, is it, where you're in, investigating a, well, an abandoned town, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so... Yeah, um, you're a gentleman who is, I think, seeking his wife, and you're out in Silent Hill, which is shrouded sometimes with mist and fog, and you have a radio, I always remember the radio crackled if something was about mm. to happen. And Terrifying. Often nothing happens for a great deal of time. That's the, that's the genius of Silent Hill for me, is that you would run around for ages without anything happening, and then suddenly you would see something. And that's... Again, it's not just a jump scare, it's glimpses of things. My other great passion in life is horror films. Is it? Again, it's not something I download. Huge. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nice lady off the television. I just think people need to know how dark my soul is. <laughs> I absolutely adore horror. And it doesn't go for jump things jumping out all the time. There's often a really, there's a dread. You know it's about to happen. Something horrific is about to happen. When is it going to happen? So it is a, I think it is a beautiful game. And I think the story is fantastic. Again, for me, working out what's happening. There are slightly frustrating puzzles in it, without question. But there's a lot of very small puzzles going on within it. What we used to do of a weekend, again, everyone's going to be utterly thrilled by the uh, details of our domesticity. (laughs) I printed out. A walkthrough of Simon the Hill. It was the size of a phone book. <laughs> we would sit on the sofa and Lee would play. <laughs> You'd tell her what to do. And that's what we would do. And then if it got to a cutscene, and we still do this to this day, when it comes to a cutscene, you press the controller. Oh, ingenious. And you wait, and you switch roles at that point. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we just so we switch roles. Even now, we sit on the sofa with our little tartan blanket. And when a cutscene comes on, you pass the controller. That is adorable. So we want to play this really deeply disturbing game. It's like two old people in a car with a roadmap, right? No, you've gone the wrong way. You've gone the wrong way. Wonderful. It was a wonderful way to pass time. Yeah. Silent Hill 2, for me, is just almost perfect. It's been really fun to see how a younger generation has discovered those early Silent Hill games. Because now, if you want to buy Silent Hill 2, I think on eBay, you're going to, it's going to set you back a lot of money because there's so there's so many YouTubers that want to stream the game while they're playing it because it's, like you say, got such great suspense. It makes for good content for the kids. Um, but yeah, it's been nice to see that it's... That was uh, my life. That was <laughs> my life. <laughs> yeah. If you'd have filmed the two of you under your blankets, that could have been, could have been a very different <laughs> career path there. <laughs> so I've kept all of the games. So I've got the console I've got. So I... I Whilst we've given away any games that we don't like playing, we always give to the charity shops or something like that. Someone else can play. But the ones we love, we've kept. So I've still Mm. got all the Silent Hills. And and really it is, whilst it's horrific, but some great great memories of romantic memories of Silent Hill. (laughs) Lovely. I I read an interview, which it was quite early in your career, I think, and you described being a... um, 
a gay young person in Glasgow as being um, like a vegan working in an abattoir. It was not uh, a comfortable fit. And as well, I, you know, I've read that you've sort of bemoaned the lack of LGBT representation, not just in, in games, but but also in games. That's, I, I think, has started to change in recent years. Does, has that been your sense? Everything, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Accessibility was a god of war that was particularly good in terms of accessibility. My wife was playing that recently and I think and I read an article about how trying to increase accessibility. So I think I think really in general, I mean for everything, things have changed. But I think that's also because people have different creative outlets that they can find people can find them as well. I, I when I started doing stand up there was no social media. There was no social media at all. Now there's TikTok and there's YouTube and there's all of those kind of things and, and you can find your audience. And it's not all about linear broadcast anymore. You can get as many viewers doing a, a Facebook Live or an Instagram Live as some television programs. So, of course, I mean, absolutely, I think it has changed. I always like to try to think positively about it. And I do think, I mean, shows like Taskmaster, which I mean, it's the only show I ever want to go on. I've watched every episode. I've written a list of everything anyone's ever done wrong on Taskmaster. I mean, I've just seen every episode about 50 times in the hope that one day I'll be called up. Yeah. Oh, you'd be perfect on it. I hope they get you. Oh, gosh, I hope so. I'm sure you will. But you look at who's on those shows now. Getting million-odd viewers, it's very different to the way it was. And I think that's... When I, when I started comedy, there were four channels, five channels, I think. And that's what you wanted to get on. You don't need to worry about that now. You know, so I think it's a much better world. I, I'm sure you've um, experienced, um, you know, misogynistic abuse or homophobic abuse at, at stand-up gigs in the past. Do you think that's changed as well, sort of in in terms of the sort of he- that kind of heckling? Do you think it's become less socially acceptable? I, look, I think it depends on the club. And I don't mean the club owners or the, anything like that. I think all of us... You know, if you go, if you do a Friday and a Saturday night in stag and hen season, that's who's going to be in. You know, it's difficult to generalise about the world of stand-up. You know, there are some clubs which are very alternative still, but most of us who wanted to make a living would do the Friday, Saturday nights. And even the brilliant clubs would occasionally have a stag and a hen party in. I remember doing a club once in Manchester and the bouncer came up and said, I'm sorry, there's been a huge mistake and there's five stag parties in. Oh, wow. And I thought he was going to say, so we told two of them to go on ink. He didn't, he just went, so... So good luck. Good luck. And you're like, right, okay. The reason I started touring on my own was because, and it was my great friend Jeremy Hardy, now sadly passed away, great, great fella, said to me, you're better to do a show to 20 people who want to see you than 500 people who couldn't care. Yeah, great perspective. And so that's why I started touring to 20 people. Because he said to me, go and do the shows you want to do in front of an audience who wants to see you. So I started doing that probably 2015, 2014 and took myself out of the club gig situation. So I was performing, even if it was only a few people, but they wanted to come and see me. So Jeremy Hardy really completely changed the course of what I was doing by giving me some incredible advice. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I miss hearing him. On my radio, very much. Wonderful fella. Really, and such an incredible mentor to so many people. He was just a wonderful fella. Let's come to your your fourth game. Uh, Can you tell us about it and when you first played it? So, again, 
romance. It's Christmas time in my household and my uh, better half has purchased. By the way, I do know other people apart from my wife. It's just none of them game. I know it's, it's my wife and I game together. That's yeah. what we do. My other friends do not. So this is why. I don't want anyone to think I'm locked in a house. Sure. With her and seven cats and I'm not allowed to leave. Looking at video game toilets. <laughs> yes. But it's fun. <laughs> she bought Rabbit and Clank. know what it was it was one of those impulse purchases but at this point we've got a bit more money we're buying video games at this point we're not ready to <laughs> we're buying them also blockbuster's gone out of business blockbuster's was gone about 10 years <laughs> and i think this was the ps2 i think it was the ps2 which was of course a giant step forward in technology i mean this this nothing would ever beat the ps2 in my mind and the reason i loved that and clank specifically the first games but the amount of things that you could do, the skill points, my God, the amount of time I spent trying to get the skill points for every single um, part of that game, shooting down a dinosaur with a laser rifle, the upgrading of the weapons, the, the whole thing. And it was funny. So after Silent Hill 2, <laughs> which, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, a bit of a tonal change to Ratchet and Clank. Ratchet and Clank is really funny. Yeah. And it is one of those games that you can just put on and play a level. And then stop it and then go away. So it is funny, bright, colourful. And loved the humour of the weapons and the sheepinator later on. And all of I just, I, it's just fun to play. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, it's like, and uh, did you play the most recent one on um, PlayStation Five? And yes, yeah, yeah, it just looks incredible, doesn't it? That game, really sumptuous. It's beautiful. I think the only thing they've slightly lost with the sumptuous nature of it is is the humour, right? Of it, um, of the glorious moment of getting the Captain Quark action figure that you then trade in later on, and the de- the slightly detailed humour of it. I think it, it's, and there was one of them I played that I played in about two and a half hours and I was finished. Brilliant. That's not good. Because the reason that action clank was good was it was hours. Now, that was either the skateboarding level or there was a hollow skating level. And I remember going to bed and at five o'clock my wife was still up trying to win the gold bolt. Oh, wow. <laughs> so... I mean, she's a completionist. She's, I mean, it's horrific. She's, I, I sometimes haven't even left the house before I hear the PlayStation going on. And she freely admits, I've not been at work for three months and I leave in two weeks and she can't wait because she'll play God of War and Oblivion and 
all of she loves these games that never end. She doesn't have to pass the controller every cutscene when you're gone. <laughs> no, because I can't be bothered with some of these things. So when we play Assassin's Creed together, mm. I like to run around and she'll do all this the, the really minute idiot kind of idiotic things, I would call it. This'll cut through the romance that everyone listening thinks that we went to Venice on our honeymoon. Too ready to. Oh, oh, but all she could talk about was Assassin's Creed. Okay. We were standing and she went, I went up that building. <laughs> and you think, could you? Just, you're, you're thinking about Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Leaping into bales of hay. <laughs> Everywhere we went, she went, oh, that was a difficult one, that one, wasn't it? <laughs> so we, we play some games together still. And then some are, because she really, really gets, she loves a dark elf. You know what I mean? <laughs> I came home once. I came home once when I was gigging and I walked in, we were in a flat at the time. I was really upset. And I said, what's wrong? Because I thought someone had died. And she said, I think it was Oblivion she was playing. She said, I've been in the wrong goblin cave for five hours. <laughs> what did she mean, the wrong goblin cave? I think she was meant to be in Jim's goblin cave, but she'd found it and she was searching for something. And she was so angry. I remember thinking... Maybe needs to hype that PlayStation for <laughs> Leading her out into the sunlight. Right, and Clank, we would play, you would do a section each. You would play one mission, then one mission, and sit on the sofa with a tart and blankets and a packet of crisps. Perfect. Um, I, said, I said in the introduction that you were recognised by the Glasgow University, which you attended, of course, for your campaigning on mental health issues. You know, that's a, again another area that's like really, really changed. I think the conversation in recent years it's become much more acceptable to to discuss mental health. And um, I, I'm assuming that wasn't the situation when you were when you were first experiencing some of those difficulties as a as a teenager. Did you feel quite isolated at that time? I think people just didn't necessarily think that. Not that children didn't have anxiety and depression, but they didn't really talk about it I don't think mm. I think it's great that now there's more of a focus on young people's mental health on young male mental health because that's a huge area of concern I think I, I always have a concern about mental health funding mm. yeah of course because I think that's a huge issue just now of the first step is obviously to ask for help but whether or not the help is there yeah friends can help talking to people helps Sometimes you do need a professional. Mm, yeah, of course. You know, sometimes you really do need somebody who knows what they're doing to help you. I, I wrote a book called Cheer Up Love, which was about coming to terms with myself. I'm just a bit strange. I'm a bit eccentric. And I'm quite happy to say at the age of 48, I, I, I've only really started embracing that I'm a bit odd, but that's fine in the past, you know, when I had 40. I've got a Dalek in my dining room. I've got a three-quarter size TARDIS in my hole, but the cat's sleeping. I think realising that being a bit different is absolutely fine, but actually enjoying it yeah, yeah. is something that I've come to later in life. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if, you know, people have always been a bit different and a bit eccentric, I think. It's just maybe that there was more, you know, 100 years ago, there's just so much more pressure to conform and so much less space to explore those eccentricities a bit maybe did you um i mean you've talked you've talked about your mental health struggles as a as a child quite on, on like public platforms and in 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 your work as well 
Have you ever had a conversation with your parents about um, about that and how have they reacted to sort of y- you talking about, you know, I- I'm not for one moment saying that um, what you went through was related to any of their failures, but perhaps as a parent, they have a, they might find that difficult. I don't know. Have you talked to them about it? No, I mean, quite rightly, we've had no discussions at all. <laughs> Which is the appropriate way. The Scottish way. I'm being, I'm being quite sarcastic before anyone shouts at me. No, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. Um, I think my mum and dad read my book and said it was very good. And that was the end of the discussion. <laughs> and that's quite right, because I would feel very uncomfortable talking to them about it. It's a, a lovely relationship that we have now, where they watch me on the television and find out more about me by watching me on the television than they ever knew. To me. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because that's just the way it is. We love each other and adore each other, but we're just not the. I think there's something about a generation. This is just my view. My mum and dad were both born during the Second World War, brought up in Glasgow after the Second World War. People had died, people had lost people. The city was bombed, or, you know, there was a danger every single day. I remember growing up, my gran still had her bomb shelter in her back garden wow. from the Second World War. You go on with it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You go on with things. And my dad is a very, very caring person, but grew up in a time where you go on with things. You know, you didn't indulge yourself. So I, I, I don't, I don't hold any grudges against the way that they are. And I found my own way of talking about things. Absolutely not. It's improper to talk about personal feelings. <laughs> you know, no, they find me, my whole family find me slightly odd because I cry a lot and I express emotions and I, you know, but that's the way that I am. And I'm always crying on the television about something that I find deeply moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Shall we come to your, your fifth and your final game? Can you tell us about it? So... Uh, The final game is Arkham City. Now, this was a bit of a tough one because I considered Arkham Asylum. The first Batman game in this trilogy. Yes. Um, Played Arkham Asylum, adored Arkham Asylum, no question. I think Arkham Asylum is an extraordinary game. The reason why Arkham City edged it for me was the vastness of it. So it had the elements of Arkham Asylum, brilliant thing. And again, the conversation he had with Dara where he was talking about collecting things and all of those things. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And Arkham City expanded it to play as Catwoman and it had little side missions. And I'm obsessed with Batman. I love Batman. I mean, I love Batman. 
I, I put on Instagram the other day something about Batman being Batman, and he said, "Wouldn't you be Catwoman?" I said, "No, I'm Batman. I can't be Batman. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be Batman. I love Batman." And the first time I played the Arkham games, you were Batman. It's like Goldeneye. You were James Bond. This really made you feel like you were Batman. And the controls for fighting were intuitive, but still made you feel like you were really, you know, going for it. The stealth missions were incredible. The collection of the little kind of trophies and everything else. But the expanse of being able to explore Arkham City was wonderful. It's the only game that I've ever woken my wife up at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning and said, you have to get up, we have to keep playing. We have to keep playing this game. <laughs> Quick, get up, we've got a city to save. So, yes, exactly. You know, you're not going to be saving anyone lying in that bed, are you? <laughs> now, because the other rule we have is we don't play the game without the other person. Okay. So I couldn't go and play it while she was asleep. Right, it'd be a betrayal. It is. It's a betrayal of trust. Yeah. <laughs> a betrayal of the trust on which our marriage is apparently based. <laughs> and she will. She texted me once as we were playing and said, is it okay if I, I think it was a Lego game we were playing for fun, is it okay if I collect some studs in Lego Harry Potter? And I was like, yes, you can. <laughs> That's acceptable. As long as you don't play any of the missions, <laughs> you can collect some studs. That's fine. And it really, it really, those, I think Arkham Asylum and Arkham City are both incredible. It looked beautiful. It sounded beautiful. The voice acting was incredible. I mean, it is, it's a work of art. Yeah, amazing. Really good. Um, Susan, it's been so good to talk to you and hear your choices. So let me go through them. Hey, this has been a more this has been a more personal interview than anyone else has ever got out of me about my romantic life, by the way, just by talking about video games. <laughs> the domestic bliss. Got so many exclusives. <laughs> okay, so we've got uh, we've got GoldenEye 007, Tomb Raider 2. Silent Hill 2, Ratchet and Clank, and Batman Arkham City. A very fine console, I think. Very fine selection there. Um, have you got a, a name for the console that we can we can put on the box and uh, sell in Blockbuster? Yes. Um, <laughs> no one will ever know the joy of a Blockbuster, I'm afraid of that. Um, I think you should call it um, uh, the Calmanac of Gaming. Very nice. Good. The Calmanac. Well, listen, uh, before I let you go, so I was thinking we might have, uh, there might be a young person who's listening who sort of identifies with uh, with young Susan Kalman and feels like they, you know, they don't fit and they're maybe unaccepted by the people around them or the culture or whatever, um, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, how might you, you encourage them and, you know, or how might you have encouraged yourself at that stage? For me, anyone who feels like they don't fit in and whilst we've, I had some fun about talking about these periods of my life where I played GoldenEye and Tomb Raider 2. I was very lonely. I think loneliness is one of the worst possible things for anybody, particularly loneliness that's born of not fitting in. And for me, um, if I told my 16 or 17-year-old self that one day I would find people who were absolutely, didn't even accept, it's not about accepting me, just thought, I, just thought I was the same as them. Then I think I wouldn't have been so frightened. I think the the fear of never finding your people or where you fit in is quite difficult. There are people out there. There's a whole world out there. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to be a bit brave about it. Never get to the stage where it's so awful that you're in a real trouble. That's the biggest possible thing is is always make sure you know that there is always someone to talk to. There is always someone to talk to. 
in various helplines and other things. But I think it's about just trying to be sure of yourself. Comedy really helped me find out who I was. And it's about finding who who you are and being okay about it. So sometimes it's about being a little bit a bit brave and understanding that life is hard, but it's worth it. I was in my early 30s, I think, before I found out who I was when I started doing stand-up comedy. The years before that aren't wasted. And I always feel really bad when I meet young people who at 17 are being asked what they want to do. Yeah, so young. You know, who knows? And that's fine. It's fine to not know who you are or what you want to do. Relax. Just relax. And you will find a way and you will find who you are. But stop. The, the greatest thing that I was ever told was to try and be kinder to myself. And I think if you try and do that, things become clearer. So be kind to yourself. Yeah, wonderful. And following on from that, what's your favourite video game toilet? Um, okay. So, and I think it might be Duke Nukem. <laughs> I think it might be Duke Nukem. Okay. I think... And looking back at it, when you went, it was in a strip club or something. I mean, of all the things. <laughs> a, a young me playing, walking past some um, ladies in a, in a gentleman's club uh, and going to the toilet and going, oh, I can flush that. I mean, ignoring <laughs> everything else that was happening. And just, yeah. so I, I Duke Nukem was the first, the best, and, and always the one I remember. <laughs> I'm not sure Duke Nukem... Um embodies the idea of being kind to yourself but never mind he's got excellent toilets absolutely not <laughs> absolutely not but the thing is what i never do is i never get rid of all those things i've done they're all there <laughs> duke newcomb is still there it's not one play right now duke newcomb is always there wonderful thank you susan this has been amazing thank you so much thank you darling Thank you so much to my guest, the lovely Susan Kalman. Wasn't that such a treat to hear her choices and also to get that lovely insight into her domestic life. Uh, very gratifying to hear her say that she's revealed more than she has in any other interview about, about that. And it sort of um, justifies my theory that video games are an interesting lens through which uh, we can come to know some well-known figures in public life uh, better and from a from a different sort of angle as well. Uh, thank you so much for listening this far into the podcast and, and for joining. Uh, if this is the first episode that you've ever listened to, please do go back. We have some wonderful other guests uh, in previous episodes. Susan referenced... Um, her friend and colleague, uh, the comedian Dara O'Brien. Uh, you can go back and listen to his episode. He talks about uh, the video game related game show Go 8 Bit uh, that he hosted on the uh, British channel Day for a while. And Susan uh, was a guest on, on that show as well. And Dara talks about her appearance there. So, uh, yeah, slowly building up the My Perfect Console cinematic universe here. <laughs> do go back and uh, and listen to some of those episodes 
you can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Thank you so much uh, to those of you who have done so already to uh, say nice things about the podcast. It is a, a real encouragement. And as always, if you have suggestions for guests or people you would like to hear from, do do just write, let me know, and uh, I will be only too happy to approach those individuals, I'm sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Simon Parkin. And you can follow the podcast as well at My Perfect Console with the O's removed from console. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast financially, head to Acast Plus, where you can become an early access supporter. And for just £3 a month, you will get episodes 24 hours early and with no adverts as well. Uh, and it also just helps support the podcast and uh, the making of it. Uh, it takes quite a lot of work to make these things, as you might imagine, more than I did <laughs> before I started. But uh, it's also a great joy to do this. So uh, don't feel like you have to do that. Um, OK, it only remains for me to say thank you again for, for joining me and uh, for listening to Susan's episode. Uh, you can, by the way, hear her on the radio regularly. She's a regular guest on the News Quiz uh, and uh, other Radio 4 programmes, I'm sorry I haven't a clue, and so on. Uh, she uh, alluded to her time as well as a contestant on uh, Strictly Come Dancing. You can go back, watch some of those performances on YouTube. Next week, I will have another guest, their five choices, and one more perfect console. Until then, have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.